Hey everyone, and welcome back to Latter Day Takes. I'm your host, Arthur Anderson. On this Thursday morning, it's a little bit cold uh, outside. It's the windshield's apparently going to be insane for today, tomorrow. Stay safe, everybody. Stay indoors. Be smart about how you leave. Things like that. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be wild out there. Like up, uh, like as low as negative sixties in some parts, regions close to where we are in the country. I think it's going to hit like negative 20, negative 40, roughly, um, even in Utah and parts of northern Utah. It reminds me of when I was on the top of Mount Whitney with the wind chill. We were well into the negative 20s. It is uh, not pleasant. All right. So on today's episode, we've got a segment for my nephew Mark on his mission. He asks for some advice. I read his email. I share my advice. That becomes kind of like the spiritual segment for today's episode because I'm not feeling too well. I've got a head cold that I've been battling for about a week or so now and um, just doing what I can to overcome it. Um, and then from there, uh, you know, after the advice section from Mark, I uh, go into a, a longer form topic of It's a Wonderful Life and why I believe that movie is amazing, why I love it, why it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I bring in a good friend of mine who's a screenwriter out in L.A. in Hollywood, Andy Winkier. Um, and Andy's, I've, I've always loved my conversations with him when it comes to movies and film and things like that. And just saying film makes me sound pretentious, and I'm sorry about that. But with that said, I think it's an interesting topic. I share some thoughts on why I love it. We go through a little bit of nuances of the film and kind of make some funny jokes, things like that. I hope you enjoy it. But before we get to... You know, that main, you know, just basically the rest of the podcast. I did want to give a little shout out. So I, I got a buddy who listens to the pod a lot, John Stevens. Appreciate it, brother. He he acknowledged that BYU had a pretty nice sports weekend last weekend with BYU beating Utah in basketball and then winning their bowl game, which like they shouldn't have. They were not, they were, I think they were the underdog by like three or four points. Anyway, and, and just a stripped down team. And he's like, you should do a shout out episode to BYU, kind of bring back the old Fifty Shades of Blue I loved that idea. I did not have the energy this week to really like get that going in full force and to like give a whole segment of why uh, BYU fans should be positive about the future. And here's the thing. They should be, but it's going to be long term. So I did want to give a little bit of my thoughts really quickly on that. Now, let's talk SMU. That bowl game was a pleasant surprise. And I think there are a couple of reasons why to look into this. We were playing literally with our third or fourth string quarterback. I actually think he was literally the fourth string quarterback. Um, and Kalani was running the defense and it was a stripped down coaching staff. And we had so many starters out and we were able to beat pretty average SMU team. Not great, but they had an offense that had a firepower that had it in them to put up a lot of points. And we were able to keep them at bay with, Solid defensive schemes. We got pretty lucky at one point with a pick six that ended up being pretty much a 14-point swing most likely because had we not gotten our seven points from that, they would have probably likely gotten their seven points on that drive. Anyway, that changed the whole dynamic of the game in the second half, early second half. But with that said, I think there's a lot of things to be positive about. Now, we're not getting the best recruits. We're losing a lot of those to Utah. Um, We are losing a lot of players transferring and things like that. But... I think with Jay Hill, that addition, I think that's something to be excited about. I think Kalani is going to, once again, buckle down. I don't think we're going to make a bowl game next year. We not, may, may not make it the second year, but I think we have things to be excited about in the future with just how we're hunkering down as a football team. Basketball is a little bit harder to say right now. It seems like they're starting to click a little bit better, but we 
our level of competition also hasn't been stellar. Supposedly, we beat a really good Utah basketball team. I think the jury's still out on that. They need to get deeper into Pac-12 play, even though they did beat a very, very good Arizona team, obviously. So jury's still out. We'll see. Um, with that, love you all. Hope you're looking forward to a wonderful Christmas. I hope you're taking the time to recognize truly what Christmas is all about. I think we get caught up in the you know, parts of life that we think matter more than they really do. And when you realize this life is really about family, it's about faith, it's about close friendships, and more importantly, it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So I hope you're taking time to recognize the important things of life and specifically evaluating your relationship with Christ and acknowledging everything he's done for you specifically as an individual. I love my Savior so much. I cannot emphasize that enough. I know that I don't always do my best, and that's something that I need to really try and focus on more and more through this throughout this life, is that I can be at least try harder to be a better person. And I hope you all are doing the same. I know there's a, plenty of wonderful examples to me out there, and I thank you all for that. I know a lot of you listen to the podcast, and you really are wonderful examples to me, and I cannot be more grateful for that. With that, I'll go ahead and toss it to the first segment of the day with Mark's email and my advice. But again, I love you all. Have a Merry Christmas and a wonderful new year. It'll likely be the next catch you uh, on 2023. I don't think I'll be dropping an episode between now and then. But if you don't hear from me before then, just know that I really, really appreciate all your help through this, all your feedback, all your love. And I'm looking forward to 2023 being a great year for Latter-day Takes. Before we get started on the podcast, I do want to give a shout out to a sponsor, uh, Odyssey Snacks. We're back at it, guys. These these protein bars, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you are amazing. Now, you have six flavors to choose from. It's Odyssey Snacks. You can find these on odysseysnacks.com. You can also find these on Amazon. Now, if you go to odysseysnacks.com and type in my promo code, HEARTBEAT10, you'll actually get 10% off, so who doesn't love that? But let me tell you, we have mint chocolate brownie, peanut butter chocolate chip, dark chocolate almond, vanilla blueberry, mocha chocolate crisp, and my personal favorite, banana chocolate chip peanut butter. The consistency of these bars is amazing. The taste of all of these, I've had them all, is amazing. I promise you, I'm not just kidding. And I've had a lot of protein bars in my life. I like the Fit Crunch one. I like the G2G, but these are honestly better the macros are amazing, and they actually make you feel pretty energized. Like, you can hit the gym pretty hard with these. I would know, guys, not because I'm a total meathead, but maybe because I'm a little bit of a meathead. I fasted for three days, and then I was cra- – no joke, I was craving these bars. Maybe I'll tell you guys more about that at another time, but I literally did not eat any calories for almost an, exactly 72 hours straight. I mean, it's 66 that wasn't because I couldn't make it to 72. That was just because I figured I was doing a measurement and I was like, oh, I was done. Might as well eat. Anyway, I craved these bars because they taste delicious. Great on the macros. Check them out. You will not regret it. OdysseySnacks.com slash Heartbeat10. We'll take you right there to the discount page or you can enter it in the checkout as a promo code H-A-R-P-E-Y-1-0 and you get 10% off. Would make a great Christmas gift. Would make a great snack to go to the gym traveling, whatever you see fit. Anyway, enjoy it, guys. Check it out. Love you all. Catch you later. 
Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yes. best cult. Have you ever, under the influence of alcohol, questioned the teachings of the Mormon church? Well, and these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. They're all Mormon, right? Yeah. So they're not most drinking. Of it, most of it. And they're like not cussing. They're like, Slovis, you stink. <laughs> I'm, afraid I'm afraid it was, it was the Mormons. Mormons. Yes, yes, the Mormons were the correct answer. Shout out to the Latter-day Saints. All right, everyone. Um, on today's opener, um, sorry, a little slow moving this week. Um, I haven't felt the best. I've been a little bit sick these uh, last uh, week, week or so. Hopefully just wearing off. It's just a cold. It's whatever. Maybe it's COVID. I don't know. We'll see. But um, actually, we won't see. I'm not going to get tested. I don't care. But anyway, um, I've got an email from Nephew Mark, and I'm going to kind of incorporate this into the spiritual segment side. So we're going to do this at the beginning, and then we're just going to close out with the rest of the episode with my buddy Andy, the screen, the screenwriter out in uh, Hollywood. Um, but before we get to that, I did want to read an email from Missionary, my uh, my nephew Mark, and he was asking for a little bit more advice and he's actually being serious, which I know I need to qualify because probably about 90% of his emails aren't. So anyway, I'm going to read his email and then I'll give my feedback and I wrote down a bunch of stuff and I think it's helpful and um, we'll see maybe if anybody else out there has better advice than I do, which is definitely possible. Uh, Y'all can submit your feedback and we can all help him together. But anyway, he's going through a hard time. He's uh, he's out in uh, Kentucky and he's just with a companion that really kind of refuses to work the traditional missionary way and kind of not work at all, from what I understand. That's that's at least what I can gather. But he shared some of the details. He actually was in a, a, a trio, so he had two companions, which is kind of rare. Funny enough, I started my mission that way, too. My first two weeks, I had a companion um, who had left just to get back to BYU, um, but about left, you know, finished his mission about four weeks early. And so his parents came and picked him up and all that. But... Um, and then that was just normal for me, just in a, in a duo. But um, with Mark, one of his companions actually got emergency transferred, it sounds like, for doing something that he definitely should not have been doing. He shared that with me. I do not feel like it's appropriate to share those details. With that being said, it just highlights kind of the situation that he was in, that Mark was in as a companion here with these other two that not only was it laziness but it was just kind of a lot of uh really not pro mission attitudes going on in the mission and um from what he got emergency transfer for from what i can understand it's not just not being a pro mission it was very much going against what we um you know the how we try to conduct our our daily lives just as members of the church so anyway um but from what I understand, that companion's still on the mission. He's just in a different area. So anyway, it's just Mark and his companion, and we'll go from there. But um, my real question is, this is Mark, so I'm going to be reading from reading his email, and it's going to be in his voice. Um, my real question is, so I've told President yet again that we're not doing squat, and just and it's just so dumb, and basically he was like, yeah, <laughs> just get a kick out of reading this. And basically he was... He was like, so yeah, you can't change your comp, and I can't change him either, so you just need to keep that desire you have to be a good missionary and wait until you get someone you can work with. And use this time of laziness to become as converted as possible to the Lord by reading the scripture and stuff. scriptures and stuff. I was like, wait, what? No way. So instead of having an actual fix, I'm just supposed to sit on my butt all day and somehow keep a desire to serve burning 
while I read the Book of Mormon? How does that one work? Anyway, kind of going crazy out here, but just thought I'd ask if you had some suggestions or not. I'm finding that I'm becoming a lazier person by being around someone like this, which is super frustrating to me. But anyway, yeah, a couple more weeks left in the transfer, then I guess I pray I'll get somewhere, someone better. Is the whole mission going to be two years of roulette where I just see if I have a good comp and I can work or if, it, or if I have a bad one and I just read the scriptures? That sounds like the trashiest thing of my life. Missions have changed for the worse. I don't know how I'm going to fix it, but I'll keep thinking, I guess. Um, hope you're doing good in your new apartment and Merry Christmas. All right, so that's Mark's email. Now, I've got a few thoughts here initially, and um, I, the, the advice he got from his mission president, or and, I, and I'll talk to Mark directly here because I'm going to cut this and send it to him. Mark, the advice you got from your mission president is tough. Like that, that doesn't seem right that he would just say, hey, worry about yourself, strengthen your own testimony, and go from there, you would think a mission president would be invested in the conduct of all his missionaries, right? You would think you would want them to be really invested in their mission and trying to get as much work as done as possible, and which you'd think he'd intervene. You'd think he'd talk to that companion and say, hey, what's causing you to not work? Why is it that you're being lazy? Or at least, you know, maybe have an an appointment, a little session where he sits both of them down and says, what's not what's not working here, right? I mean, I think that's what I would do as a mission president. Granted, I am so far removed from the mentality of a mission president that I don't know for sure exactly what I would do. Um, I can't say that with an unbiased outlook. However, I do think it seems a little strange that he's not at least trying to motivate or at least help motivate your companion in all this because that does seem to be a major player in your own progression and your own well-being as a missionary. However, it's not everything. Right. And it's not even the most. And we'll get into that. So I think, Mark, what you should really focus on is the serenity prayer. Now, that may sound strange and you may not have even heard of what the serenity prayer is. So let me read it to you. Um, From what I understand, the background of the serenity prayer was written by I can't remember. It was a priest of another religion. It was um, not Catholic, but it was it was Christian. It's a very inspired prayer. Um, Addicts use it a lot as a way of like overcoming their addictions. And it goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I think that's a one of the most beautiful, constructed poems, prayers, whatever you want to call it, that I've ever seen. Because it's meant to put your mind at ease. It's meant to change the cognitive dissonance that you may be experiencing and giving you some comfort, right? And giving you more of a purpose and saying, okay, what can I control? That's that's what this prayer is saying. And you know what? You're kind of in this position right now. You have to control what you can control and not, or at least try and worry as little as possible about what you can't control. And right now that involves your companion. How do we, how do we differentiate between the things we can control and the things we can't? This is the wisdom to know the difference. That's that last part of the serenity prayer. You have to plead with the Lord that you can make this known to you. From there, you can start to draw out a plan that focuses on everything you can control in this specific situation that you're in right now. I think you'll be surprised that there's actually more about your situation that is in your control than not. First and foremost, you can control your outlook and your attitude, among many other things. And furthermore, I feel like I need to mention that you absolutely cannot let this disillusion you for the rest of your mission, right? And, and you talked about that, and I'm actually glad you referenced that as I like, this can maybe affect you, like you're becoming more lazy, you're becoming less motivated. And that makes sense, 
right? The, the idea that two missionaries are together, that's meant to be synergistic, if that's a word. But there's supposed to be synergy. You're supposed to build off of each other. You're supposed to be able to make each other better, right? That's kind of what a marriage is. Missionary companionships basically emulate that, at least that part of a marriage, uh, to a large degree. If you see this as an opportunity to map out all the aspects of your mission, you can control as a missionary, you're going to be ready to hit the ground running once you're senior companion. Like this, if you use this to your complete advantage, you're going to be an unbelievable senior companion. And that's when your sphere of influence, what you can control, actually becomes bigger, right? Because unfortunately, the dynamics right now in missions are that senior companions really do kind of run the show. Now, I understand that there needs to be kind of a hierarchy to some degree because you're not always going to agree on the best approach at something. And so if there is that gridlock, you just kind of have to say, okay, who's been out here in the longest or who has the, who's been appointed because not always is a senior companion that's, it, that's been out there the longest. But who's been appointed senior companion? And for that reason, it's kind of like they can they can make the deciding factor there. Now, that doesn't mean that leading up to that point, it shouldn't be more mutual. I think it should be because I've had junior companions that have been amazing that showed me so much in terms of what I could have done better, what I was doing wrong, or what I was missing, right? But unfortunately, that's not really the role that you have as a junior companion here. He doesn't care, it sounds like. Now, what does this look like for you? Right? What is it that you can map out as a missionary? And I would map out exactly what a successful mission looks like to you. Now, remember, you have to base your success off of what you can control. That's all in accordance with what you can control. You cannot control other people's agency. So don't put how many baptisms you get or how many investigators you're able to bring to church. I have an inherent problem personally with the goal setting in that regard of the church and missionary work specifically. But if your mission wants to, do it, whatever, put out put out how many baptisms you think you'll get per month or whatever. I, I don't know. Every mission's a little bit different, I guess. But um, don't make that part of your own personal success because you cannot control who gets baptized. You can control what you do in large part leading up to that, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, but just don't put that much value or any value in other people's agency, right? You should put value in your ability to contact everyone that you come in contact with. So everybody that you see now becomes part of your sphere of influence. You can reach out to that person. You can say whatever you want to them. But if you try and make it tethered to the gospel, to missionary work, that is going to be more of a marker of success. You can control how many people you approach per day. I'll tell you this. The dynamic of my mission changed a lot because I found myself in a tiny town. I mean, we're talking less than 10,000 people in this town. And like half of those people, like half of the men in that town were working in Thousand Oaks, California. For whatever reason, they love Thousand Oaks. But um, so it was very sparse, not a lot of work out there, small branch. And they started to tell us like, hey, you need to contact 120 people per week, which that was between companionships. So from what I understand, or maybe it was 140. I think it was 140 because they wanted us to do 10 each a day or 20 as a companionship a day, basically. And and we were like, well, that's ridiculous. Like there's like, the, we'll, we'll be done contacting this town in like, I don't know, a couple months, <laughs> and which obviously wasn't true. But that's how we looked at it because there just weren't that many people in that town and how like whatever, right? But that didn't matter. You could recontact people all the time. You could follow up, all those things, right? And that really changed a lot of the dynamic of our mission because we're like, all right, let's just do it. Let's go out there and try and get 20 a day between the two of us, which in hindsight, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, you could do that in less than an hour. 
right? All you're doing is approaching them and introducing yourself and then saying, this is who we are. Would you like to know more about what we do, right? And then you try and set an appointment or you just have like a little mini lesson there right there on the street, right? That's a contact. That, we were able to have success in that little tiny town uh, in Mexico just by doing that, by setting that base, like that bare minimum market. How many people are you going to talk to? So I would part, start putting goals that way. Now, I know you're limited, right? Because you can't even leave the house all the time, it sounds like, based off of what your companion wants to do. But control, right, right, I guess I should say, write down what you want to talk to them about. Like have little mini topics and like just two to three sentences of what you can say per topic. What can you talk about for faith? What can you talk about for repentance? And one thing I'm going to point out again is that Alma the Elder, and you see this like, a couple times, not a ton, but you see this a couple times in the Book of Mormon, they were told to just preach faith and repentance to the people. That's it, faith and repentance, those two topics. So if you become extremely well-versed in faith and repentance, especially a mini version of that, of what faith means, like the, the elevator conversation, right? The 30-second conversation that you're going to have with somebody about faith or about repentance, foot in the door, you talk with them, and then you keep, get going from there, and then you start on lesson one, right? Um try to set an appointment, all that stuff. These are things that you can control at least a little bit more. And like I said, your opportunities are limited to the fact that your companion would literally rather sleep than actually serve a mission, it sounds like, which is insane, but what, whatever. We can't control that. Once you've mapped out what a successful mission looks like to you in regards to what you can control, incorporate your companion into it as much as possible. Ask him if he's willing to help you achieve your goals. He doesn't even have to achieve his own. Right? He doesn't have to set his own, but as long as he's willing to drive you to a certain area so you can make contacts, appointments, he doesn't even need to be there. He could just be within distance, like where he's seeing you, right? Making sure you guys are in the same area. Maybe you can expand your abilities a little more. If literally all he wants to do is sleep at home, then set new lower goals even from there like that don't involve him at all. And I think I remember talking to you about this before. Start memorizing your scriptures you use regularly in lessons. Start using the ponderize method, perhaps. That's something I haven't really done. I've memorized here and there, but pondering, really, there's a lot of power there, where you just let a scripture just kind of ruminate in your mind, or you're ruminating over this scripture, and you try and apply it to your own life. What does this look like for me? How does this scripture apply to me particularly, right? That's the that's pondering on that, but if you memorize that too, you'll become a very powerful missionary, I believe. So maybe incorporate the ponderize method um, where you not only memorize, right, but you're kind of going into deep introspective moments of that scripture and how it applies to you as a missionary. Because if you're able to make these more these scriptures apply to you more, then you can share that application with somebody in a contact, in a lesson, and then it becomes relatable. And then this person is saying, wow, this missionary is actually a lot like me. I thought they were just kind of these weirdos that just we're told to go out and serve and that was that. But no, this guy actually has been, he's experienced some things. He's had some struggles and this is how he's hes used the gospel to remedy those struggles. Maybe I can do the same thing. I know that sounds maybe more boring than just getting out there and getting after it. But keep in mind, a lot of missionaries use just getting after it as a distraction for not really wanting to put in the real work. So a lot of them will hit the ground running, but they won't really be effective. They won't really be efficient because they don't even really have a good base structure set up to that point. They're just going out there and spewing all sorts of random stuff that has like gospel keywords in it, but it kind of turns people off because they're like, I don't, this sounds overwhelming. I don't get it. I don't like it. So if you could build that foundation and then go after it, go out every day as much as possible I promise you that you will. there will come times in your mission that you'll be grateful that you took this time to focus on more scriptures and lessons. 
And I re- remember that, Mark. Remember that you, there's only so much of this situation that you can control. Do not let what you can't control bring you down. I know that's hard. But you can even kind of make fun little mini goals that don't necessarily have to do with missionary stuff. But there is a physical fitness aspect to being a missionary, right? They give you 30 minutes a day. Well, maybe you could try to get to a point where you're doing, and this sounds crazy, right? 500 push-ups a day. Can you do that in a half an hour? Huh? Right now, I'm sure you're saying no. But maybe you can at some point if you have enough time at home because you could set aside a little bit more time for physical fitness, right? Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. Mark, I'm praying for you, buddy. I wish you the best. I hope this was helpful. And if anybody else out there has more advice, I promise you I'll send it your way. Fortunately, I never really had companions this lazy. I definitely had some lazier ones than others. But for the most part, they all at least wanted to get out and work. They at least get out and do something because that's what they were out there for. Anyway, best of luck, brother. All right, joining me on the pod today, special guest, Andy Winkier. Winkier? Yeah, I always get it wrong. You don't know it. Well, it's it's technically winkier, right? But I know it. The German well, version is vonkier. Right? Uh, well, that would be more of the uh, the Danish, but I'm not. I don't know how to uh, pronounce things with the Danish accent correctly. Me neither. So I'm not going to. It'd be I more like vonkier, but um, yeah, wankier, wankier. But let me let me do a better justice introducing you, reintroducing you, by the way, because this is your second appearance on the podcast. Um award-winning screenwriter down in Hollywood, L.A., Andy Winkier. That's worth saying. I mean, you won a big award, which is really cool, and currently working on a few screenplays of your own that one is actually looking more and more promising to actually turn into a film. Yeah, the the BYU script, it's gone out for, uh, or it's going to go out for finance, and we just got the budget breakdowns. Uh, two days ago, actually, so that helps us know how many shooting days it's going to be and um, how many overtime days it's going to be. helps finalize things for the, the line producers. Nice. That's awesome, man. Had you on the podcast, I don't know, probably a year and a half ago, roughly, something like that. Yeah. Fairly early on, and it was funny, I was, I was kind of reflecting back on that, and I know we talked about this before, or at least afterwards, but <laughs> the title of it, do you remember the title of it? Uh, I'm, I, no, <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Like I look back and I'm like, Fifty wow, Shades of weird. Blue is the. But it was like my gay friend Andy comes on to talk about his experience oh, in the yeah. church, growing up in the church, and I'm like, yeah, that's that just. I don't like to think I'm a naive person. I'm sure I am in some regards, but that title, I was like, that could have been put a lot better. I'm sure. <laughs> just like sounds yeah, weird. My friend Andy, who happens to be gay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The only attribute that uh, is worth mentioning about my friend Andy. No, yeah, you do what you have close. to do for the listeners. Exactly. You get it, dude. You get it, dude. It's just clickbait, right? No, I mean, it was. I look back at that. I'm like, that's just ridiculous. I could have worded that a lot better. But um, here's the thing. I'm actually really excited to have you on this pod because this one, you and I talk movies a lot. And I love your approach because it's a little bit more cynical in nature. And I, I kind of have that same one sometimes, but like, it's almost like you just, you, you're kind of anti-rose colored glasses and I can really respect that. I don't know. Do you have, do you think otherwise? Well, sure. I am writing one of those Hallmark Christmas movies right now. So take it with a grain of salt, but yeah. Yeah. By the way, I've film got, school does that to you. What was that? What will do, film school does that to you? 
It makes you cynical. Yeah, for sure. I get that. Well, let's see how cynical we can get talking about It's a Wonderful Life. And ultimately, I kind of want this to reflect sort of how I did the last year's episode for Home Alone. I did kind of like a – it was cut from the rewatchables vein that the Ringer Mm -hmm. podcast network does um, where we went through Home Alone and basically what we liked about it and all those things. This one is not going to be pound for pound like that, but – I want to talk about it from two standpoints. Mine being that I believe, for one, it is like my favorite movie of all time. But also, I believe it is a Christmas movie. You don't believe it is a Christmas movie. So you'll be arguing that standpoint. And then I think you'll also be arguing about its flaws. Which I don't think I'll... There, I'm sure there are a few that I will inherently not disagree with. But then I may, I may digress on others and may play devil's advocate and things like that. But we'll kind of just see where this takes us but first off i'll go ahead and start so i'll talk about why i love it this is why it's one of my favorite movies of of all time honestly it's listed basically at number one and i don't even mean just christmas movies i mean this is one of my favorite movies of all time and here's the reason why and this is what i wrote down as i was thinking about it nostalgia and warm feelings aside it's a pretty well constructed film not sure if you agree with that. I think it is, especially for its time, which probably doesn't even really need that qualifier. I actually think it's just kind of a well-done film in general, but I'm no film school guy, so I could be off on that. But it's extremely wholesome and beautiful in so many ways, and the acting is even pretty good for today's standards. I would make that argument even. Now, granted, acting has almost digressed or devolved in some ways, too, because it's like they depend a lot on the advanced technology and everything like that and they call that acting so to speak but it's not even really that cheesy uh, especially for the 40s i would say made in 1946 if i'm not mistaken but those reasons alone aren't enough because there are endless disney movies that fall into those categories that you couldn't pay me enough to watch right that those those are too broadly encompassing the reason why i really like it is because to me it represents the beautiful simplicity of life in the most authentic and pure way I've ever seen on screen. And by that, I mean, if you take the supernatural aspect of an angel coming down to earth to flip perspective on a person, which is what what would life be like if they had never been born, essentially, it's a rather mundane movie, right? There's nothing really amazing about it. But when that perspective shifts and you get to witness what life was like without George Bailey in it, you see the meaning behind all the mundane aspects of his life, which gives so much value to the day-to-day simple lives we all live now. That's my overall stance. Basically, it makes the simplicity of life more beautiful. And that's what I really like about the movie as a whole. What do you think? Uh, I guess I would agree with that. It's very sentimental. It, It strikes all those right chords. I do think that it's constructed well with the setup and the payoff, for sure. I don't think there's any doubt about that uh, Frank Capra knew how to make a good movie. What else is Frank Capra known for, by the way? I can't really remember uh, off the top of my head. He did his, uh, Jimmy Stewart collaborations. Most, well, that's what I think. Did, did he I do Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? For. Mm-hmm. He yeah. did that. And um, there was another one with Jimmy Stewart that was really popular. I can't remember. The name escapes me. But he was big in the... Late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. 
Okay. So should we just get into, I mean, I want to, because I want to hear more about what you don't like about it, or the flaws, I guess, later, because that'll be kind of the gen- like the gist of what we talk about in this episode. But why you make the argument why you don't think it's a Christmas movie. I think the majority of the movie takes place in summertime and springtime and the only times we really see Christmas represented is at the very end and it just happens to be Christmas. It doesn't have much to do with the Christmas spirit. It doesn't have anything to do with Christmas festivities. There's just a Christmas tree in the background that gives activity to the actors while Jimmy Stewart's having a breakdown. So let me challenge you a little bit on that. What is, how many check boxes do you need for it to be a Christmas movie? Like what qualifies and, and cause if you, if you're going to apply that argument, then can you apply, can you apply that same logic to Die Hard, for example? Uh, I've had this debate about Die Hard. I'll actually take the opposite stance that a lot of people will say. And I think Die Hard is a Christmas movie because that movie could not take place if there wasn't a Christmas party and if there wasn't just a skeleton security crew because of the holidays. And that's why John McClane was coming to Los Angeles in the first place was for Christmas. There was nothing motivating anybody's goals or any of the scene work in this particular movie. The day he lost the bank deposit just happened to be Christmas Eve. So I actually like what you say about Die Hard. But with that said, I'm well, okay. I like what you say in the sense of I... Can appreciate. I think Die Hard's a Christmas movie too, but I don't think. I think you can make make you can make the argument that your point of it being a Christmas movie is that Christmas is more of a tool. It's mm-hmm. a mechanism in the story as opposed to like the ambiance and the feel. Yeah, I don't necessarily. Well, ambiance and feel I think are important too. I just don't get that until the last you know. 25 minutes of this movie. I don't think you really get it in Die Hard either until the very last song, essentially, right? Let it snow. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's... To live in L.A. at Christmas time is... It's not inaccurate how it's portrayed in that movie. Do you want to talk about that more? Should we have a therapy session uh, right now? What it's like... No, you can just listen Christmas to that song time. by The Killers yeah. that you, you showed me a couple years ago. Yeah, I love that song. Um, okay, all right. So... Let's talk about this. Is It's a Wonderful Life a Christmas movie? Now, I was waiting for you to make the argument that Frank Capra himself said what? Oh, when he first got the original draft of the script, he didn't perceive it as a Christmas movie either. So He didn't make it as a Christmas movie. He just thought he liked the thematics of it. I'm glad you brought that to my attention a couple days ago on the phone when I cut you off. And I was like, I don't want to talk about the podcast because I want to save it all. But I'm actually glad because you got me prepped for that one. It got me thinking. Um, well, for one, Frank Capra actually said himself, it's that the film has taken a life of its own now, and I can look at it like I had nothing to do with it. I'm like a parent whose kid grows up to be president. I'm proud, but it's the kid who did the work. I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it. I just liked the idea. To me, mm-hmm. means that he's. it's almost like he's accepted it as a Christmas movie it's just kind of based off of how he says, how he kind of gives his feel from that. But furthermore, mm-hmm. how, 
and maybe I'm wrong there, but that's just kind of what I felt like as I was reading his quote because it kind of takes on that life of its own. He's like, I didn't intend for that. I didn't intend for my kid to be president, but here my kid is president. I didn't intend for this to be a Christmas movie, but here it is a Christmas movie. It's kind of what it seemed some sort of acknowledgement from his end. Maybe I'm reading into that too much. That's fine. But how often do we see artists create something that did what that had become what they so what they created became something entirely different from what they intended. And I think you actually see that a lot. Uh, well, I guess an example that comes to mind would be Joni Mitchell's song River. She didn't write that as a Christmas song, yet it has been covered endlessly on many Christmas albums. Well, and look at Leonard Cohen uh, writing Hallelujah. Oh, no. I don't ever hear that song at Christmas, personally. I, I, I hear it a lot, and, it, and I kind of don't like it. Because it's not a Christmas yeah, it's just, song to me at all. But I hear yeah, it all the time. I, I guess just using your own questioning, what doesn't make it a Christmas song then? Because it doesn't say Jingle Bells or... Yeah, well... It doesn't talk about learning the magic of the holiday season? Yeah, basically. Honestly, that's... I mean, you could almost make the argument that the killer song Christmas in L.A. isn't even really a Christmas song in some ways, even though it has the it name... It is if you're in L.A. It is if you're in L.A. Um... I mean, I listened to it during Christmas, but furthermore, though, building off the Leonard Cohen thing, he actually didn't even like the song Hallelujah. He wrote like over 50 verses of it and like scrapped mm -hmm. it and was like, I hate this. This isn't working for me. And then it wasn't until I believe Jeff Buckley picked it up and was like, I could do something with this. He selected like three or four verses from the library of like 50 plus that he had, turned it into something, which is the version that we now know and made it popular. And then I can't remember who... Jeff Buckley was the reason why it's as popular as it is. And then from there, Leonard Cohen kind of readopted it and actually played it in concert just a few months before he died. And it was a really cool performance that you can actually find online. But anyway, just kind of building off of that is just because Frank Capra didn't think it was a Christmas movie doesn't necessarily mean that it's not, per se, was my overall argument. Uh, yeah, sure. I didn't. I guess I didn't bring that up because intentions can be interpreted one way yeah. or another, however you want to interpret them. He didn't say it's either a Christmas movie or it's not. So it's, there's room for, there's margin for error on both sides of that quote. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. Um, one other thing that I did write down that I think maybe is what you can argue it as a Christmas movie. Now, and this could be a stretch as well, but I did put down there, and this is kind of jumping ahead, when we talk about um, best most memorable line, best slash mm -hmm. most memorable line. You texted me like right away when you saw that, and you're like, we know what that is. It's obviously going to be every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. So you're like, we should just omit that altogether, which you're probably right. But I feel like maybe we can explore other ones. I don't know. Well, we'll see when we get across the bridge when we get to it. But going off of that quote, it's the most memorable line of the movie, and it has a, an inherent Christmas feel in my mind. Angels on top of the Christmas tree, bell rings on a Christmas tree at the end, and that's when Zuzu says it. Um, the climax of the movie takes place over Christmas. It ends with a Christmas song sung slightly out of key, as it would with all family Christmas parties, right? Um, New Year's song. That's a New Year's song. <laughs> that's actually all true. You're actually, you're actually <laughs> right about that. Which, by the way, I don't want to skip ahead too far to trivia, but did you hear that it wasn't originally. How do you even say that? O, 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 odd, 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 lang lang yeah, odd, like odd, odd, um, It was supposed to be Ode to Joy, or originally going to be Ode to Joy. 
Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I don't know how you sing. picked words nobody knows. Yeah, I, was, I don't even know how you sing Ode to Joy. But, which, funny enough, that's also Beethoven's in Die Hard. Ode to Joy, but yeah. <laughs> um, no, there's also a, I mean, first and foremost, the movie, I, I guess what could, it's a bleak way to make it a Christmas movie, but suicide rates do go up around the holidays. That kind of... I guess you could use as one of your arguments because to me it is a suicide movie. It's a guy committing, so he's going to jump off a bridge, <laughs> all because of a six-hour inconvenience. I mean, it, it has like dastardly ramifications for his life, though. I mean, when you look at, I think it was eight thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. I think considering inflation, that's like close to a hundred thousand. Oh yeah, it was a, it was a huge amount back then. Yeah, I, I actually started looking up the economics of Bedford Falls, and saw like a bunch of like people like there's there are people that have written like not not academic papers off of this, but like three part essays that talk about kind of the economic ramifications, and I want to talk about that a little bit when it comes to to hangups. But right. um, just before to kind of wrap, put a bow on this little segment before we get into those topics. Um, why do you think it officially flopped and then became more popular over time? Oh, you know, there might be a contextual analysis to be taken there, something post-war, post-World War II. Uh, It's really hard to know the answer to that question. Maybe, because people at the time didn't know what to make of it. Is it, what is this? Is it a Christmas movie or not? Who knows? Maybe because we were having this debate. You know, the same year, Miracle on 34th Street came out. And they, I believe it was released in summer, so they downplayed that it was a Christmas movie to get people to go see it. Hmm. Interesting. So, so yeah, it's a good question. I mean, nobody knows why something doesn't do well, but this was sort of seen as Capra's on his way out at the time. Oh, I didn't know that either. Like there, I guess he got accused of being out of touch for some reason. Because if you look at all the other movies around that time, uh, late '40s, that's when you know Hitchcock movies were real popular, and yeah, maybe audiences just didn't want it. Hmm. There's um, always a time for saccharin, and there's not. Yeah, that could be as simple as that. I mean, it is kind of an unanswerable question because you're right. How do how does anything ever flop? Why did why did Black Adam flop so badly? Oh, like yeah. last weekend or two weekends ago, whenever that mm. was. Well, I didn't see it, so <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot of Wizard of Oz didn't make money the first time either. Hmm. Interesting. It's a Wonderful Life didn't get an audience until the '70s because I'm sure you're aware of this. I know a lot of fans are probably aware of this, but it was released into public domain. They lost the copyright due to a clerical error, so all the TV stations started playing it. Yeah, and that's when it found its audience. Yeah, it's like when you make something free for the masses, mm-hmm. people will find a reason to love it. Yeah, and I guess 1946, I guess it was mostly in 47, but maybe there was just stiffer competition at the time, too. Yeah, the post-war you know. era becomes a little bit interesting there, too. I'm not not sure exactly what, what role that might have played, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to think, like, if I were... If I had been exposed to this movie like first time around, how would I feel about it with with no preconceived notions that it's a Christmas movie or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Would that feel? And 
some part of me makes it feel like it's makes it seem like it's a little bit contrived perhaps where it's like i don't need to witness this guy's midlife crisis on screen that's weird like i got my own problems i don't know right and the events that led to it yeah exactly it's like i have like i want to release when i go to a movie i don't want to be focused on you know 45 minutes of a guy's further issues and like have never having fulfilled his dreams not even 45 minutes honestly never having fulfilled his dream is like an hour and a half anyway yeah, it's most of the movie it's most of the movie yeah that all culminates in about a 30 minute segment that's actually like honestly every time it's a little bit hard to watch you're just like gosh this is like actually miserable i'm kind of feeling this but the last 30 minutes when he sees what yeah. life would have been like without him yeah and and just that day the day of when everything went down right having like Christmas Eve. Yeah, it would have been very interesting. I mean, horrible, but in, in its own way. Uh, if he had gotten his first wish, to see what it would have been like if he'd gone through with it. Yeah. That's always, and I mean, people always assume like this is going to happen and this is going to happen. I think most people who, well, maybe not most of them, but a lot of people who take their own lives um, have the idea of the impact that it will or won't have. Yeah. No, it's fair. All right, so what do you think is, let's get into the topics. What do you think the most, or the best, or the most memorable scene is? Oh, most, what I like the best, or what I think the world likes? Like the, I want to hear wide... Okay, hmm. My favorite scene, hmm, personally, I guess that's evolved. When I first watched the movie, I remember really liking the bit where he started praying. That's the one that got me. Um, the frog in my throat at the bar in martinis. Yeah. Um, cause I thought it was really well acted, especially, you know, Jimmy Stewart. It felt very authentic. And now I think the most memorable scene is the last scene where the townspeople all bring the money. Yeah. It's hard to beat that one in terms of broadly appealing and how memorable that scene is. Um, for me, I like the I like the night that he and Mary meet kind of again, like again. I say again because they like knew each other, but like the, the thing dance, that, yeah, the dance. Yeah. Um, that one has a very like innocent feeling, and something that I think is, you know, if we look at that, especially through the eyes of a single person, you're kind of like, gosh, you're still kind of hoping that somehow can meet somebody in a scenario like that, right? Obviously, it's not going to be a high school dance. Hopefully, it's not going to be a high right. school dance. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going back to any of those. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not time soon or ever. But, yeah, you kind of look at that and you're like, there's an innocence there that you just love. And it just feels like pure and genuine. And it's launching them into this arena where it's like their life, that's when the rest of their life began together. Yeah. And I like kind of their back and forth and... Um, how he's trying to just play it cool the whole time. I like the old man on the porch that calls him out, and he's like, "Oh he's yeah, like, why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death?" All that stuff, and then yeah, I do love that line: "Youth is wasted on the young," or something. Yeah, well, that's youth a good is wasted on the young. Yeah, um, and uh, the house comes full circle, like the house that they threw rocks at and made wishes, and then they actually we'll end up living. That. What's yeah. that? We'll talk about that when we get into okay. reasons I'm cool. not. Loving like some of the parts of this. Anyway, so I like that whole thing, um, that that scene. But I think you're right. I think it's hard to beat that last scene um, quite a bit. Uh, it's kind of funny. The movie really like takes place just over, like, what is it, like 
three segments because they have their montages and mm-hmm. in the movie like weirdly goes for a two-hour movie it goes very quickly because you get to the last day when everything happens like an hour into the movie oh it might be a little bit longer than that are you talking about when we land on christmas eve yeah. How long the movie's been going? Yeah, it's, I think it's a little bit longer than that. What's the total runtime of that movie? Like, almost two hours, or...? Yeah, it's about two, I think. Yeah, there's a... You're right, It does. A, it's efficient storytelling. It's when he's a kid, and then when he's about to go off to school, um, and his dad... Well... Yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, there's there's a few segments, and then when he comes back and... His brother makes him take the job, and then he meets Mary, and then it flashes forward to their marriage. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot of segments in there. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting as I was rewatching it. But, all right. So we agreed that the most memorable line is every time a bell rings and an angel gets its wings. Do we have any other lines that even stand out to you or that you remember? Uh, I think you hear it parodied a lot, but it's the prayer scene that I've mentioned. You know, Lord, I'm not a praying man. Um, I hear, I've heard that parodied on The Simpsons. I think I've heard it on a lot of sitcoms who've done a riff on this, Mm -hmm. on this show or on this movie. But I'm trying to think. Buffalo Gals is the song. I always associate it, but that's really not a line, but. I don't really hear that song anywhere else. I don't think. Yeah, um, if I hear it, I, I think I've heard it in other movies or something, and I'm like, oh, that's the It's a Wonderful Life song. But, yeah, it does feel like the end of the Wonderful Life song. Um, Hee Haw is one that comes to mind, but I don't ever really like... Oh, yeah. It's, Sam? Yeah, exactly, Sam Wainwright, that annoying, freaking, not really a good friend, Sam Wainwright, um, which I have I have a bone to pick with him later on that we'll talk about, but uh, there's that, and then... The in the classic Jimmy Stewart voice, Merry mm. Christmas, Mr. Potter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Mr. Potter's great, though. He's so evil. <laughs> he's so evil. By the way, he's like Drew Barrymore's like grandpa, great grandpa, something like that. He's somewhere down the line. Yeah, those Barrymore's have been around forever. Yeah. Anyway, okay. All right. Who Who has the best performance? What do we think? Oh, Jimmy Stewart. I mean, he had to. I think I agree. I yeah, agree. I mean, it's, it's hard to give but Oh, you know what? There's another line. I'm sorry. Can we go back to that really Please, quick? Yeah. Um, I forget her name. The blonde, his um, Violet. Friend. Yeah, Violet. Violet has a great line. Oh, this old thing? Well, I only wear it when I don't care how I look. That's a great line. <laughs> That's a great... Violet's a great character, actually. She is. Gloria Graham, shout out to her. She won an Oscar the very next year for Best Supporting Actress. In what movie? I forget the name of it, but she became a pretty big star. She was in The Greatest Show on Earth. She, um, yeah, very underrated. Name only gets brought up in this context. I was actually going to say, her performance was actually really good in that movie, when you really think about it. Now, I, I know people are going to hear me saying this, and I'm like, oh, here he is. He thinks he's some sort of film critic or whatever, but I'm no film critic. But if you actually look at what she's supposed to achieve in that movie, which is a frustrating somewhat of a bimbo type woman that you kind of despise because she's annoying. She's overtly kind of sexual, especially for that time. Very flirty, all that stuff. And when you look at that, you're like, oh my gosh, that is her. 
Like she actually nails it acting wise. Yeah. That, that woman actually nails it. She does such a good job and it kind of goes overlooked because she does such a good job. And I think one of the things that people, if they find her annoying, have to consider how annoying she must have read on the page, but she made her more sympathetic. Yeah, that's a really good point. And then the, there's even that part where she actually goes like full crazy in the when he when he witnesses her getting like kicked out of the bar yeah. or whatever that night. Yeah, she's is. getting put into the like the back of the police car or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she does a great job. That's actually a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because she is so easy to overlook. But she's fantastic. Yeah, she's uh people should check her out more. She's a very good actress. Yeah, it's zero clue she won an Oscar. Good for her. That's awesome. All right, so best performance. Obviously, that goes to Jimmy Stewart. I would agree. But is there any other performance that you think is like kind of underrated? And I think we actually already kind of covered that indirectly, where without meaning to, with uh, whoever what the actress's name for Violet was. But she did a freaking great job. But anybody else stand out to you? I mean, I'll say all the actors were good. Thomas Mitchell is the idiot uncle. He was really, really good. Especially when you compare, he's unrecognizable. A lot of people don't know that he was the father in Gone with the Wind. I didn't know that, and I've seen both movies many times, and I didn't know that until two years ago. Oh, wow. He's yeah, a very man. immersive guy. I didn't know that, that's for sure. But I don't really know Gone with the Wind that well either, either. so that's no surprise by me. But, and then, um, of course, yeah. Donna Reed. I want to talk about Uncle Billy here in a second, but... Um, All right. Yeah, Lionel Barrymore. <laughs> Idiot. Yeah. Lionel Barrymore um, did a really good job. He is very Scrooge-esque. Apparently, by the way, he gets credit... For encouraging, I think Jimmy Stewart was kind of on board from the beginning, but he really gets a lot of credit for getting Jimmy Stewart on board, apparently to do the movie because oh, really? he was kind of hesitant. It was it was going to be it was his first movie after the war, and he served in the war, mm-hmm. was in World War II, and was just kind of taking his time like reacclimating, coming back to normal life, and didn't go back to Hollywood right away. He worked at a family store, I guess, for a little bit. And then Frank Capra approached him with this movie. And he was already kind of, I think, probably going to do it. But apparently Lionel Barrymore did kind of say, like, hey, like, you should do this with us. Like, we really want you involved. So that's kind of cool. It's funny how the movie just overlooks World War One. How would it they put that in there, though? I don't know. But they're like, and then the war happened. It was like, well, there, are, there was one. They were kids, <laughs> but we didn't see the, I guess, I don't know. America was involved in that. I'll tell you what happened. Uncle Billy served in World War One and was never the same since. That's what. Yeah, happened. there we go. Is that is that a fan theory? <laughs> That's my fan theory. He might have been too old, but yeah, I would. I don't know. He was born. He looks old, but that's part of the issue. That's all part of it, man. He <laughs> would have been very, very young, but yeah. No, I. So let's get to the next one. The next uh, topic I want to talk about, which is hangups. Mm, yeah, there are a few. Yeah, so I'll start us off. Uncle Billy gets way too many chances. A, a yeah. guy that incompetent shouldn't get that many chances in capitalist America. Hmm. <laughs> he shouldn't get the chance to be like, oh, the bank inspector is coming tonight. I'm going to give this money to Uncle Billy. Well, like... I mean, that's on Jimmy. <laughs> exactly. Like, why why so did he, he, t- he took him? responsibility for it because he knew it was his fault. How did they freaking go... Like, why did he give him the $8,000 to take to the bank? How? Do, let's be honest. It's a 50-50 shot that that actually carries through based on his track record, which we see right from the beginning, yeah. which is when he goes back to the when, – when, when there's a run on the building and loan, mm-hmm. 
and he closes the freaking doors, which almost single-handedly ends their business if they didn't just happen to be driving by after the wedding. They go in. He opens the doors. It comes flooding in with people, and Uncle Billy's there going, sorry, I panicked. I just I just locked the doors. I didn't know what else to do. Right. And, uh, and he's sitting there going, oh, by the way, how was the wedding? And George looks at him. He's like, it's good. You can take that one off now. One of the knots. Why wasn't he at the wedding? I never understood that. Yeah, there's another point. (laughs) And it (laughs) was because he forgot. He had the knot on his finger, and he says, you can take that knot off your finger now. Oh, that's that's what that was in That's what that was. And it's Uh, like, he should have been there, but he forgot. And he panicked and almost single-handedly ended the family business, which, by the way, you want to talk about a sliding doors moment. That maybe the angel should have been like, let's look to see what your life would have been like had Uncle Billy, had you never saved the, the building alone when Uncle Billy, Billy almost put it under on his own. And it honestly probably point. would have been a pretty good life. <laughs> you know, we could talk about that for a second. Talking about hangups, I mean, buildings and loans pretty much went out of business three years after this movie ended. So Jimmy Stewart's best option would have been to take Potter's deal. <laughs> yeah, which, dude, I'll let you keep going. But yeah, I looked into that too. Yeah, they became the savings and loans, which is what Washington Mutual was. Some of us might remember that. But buildings and loans really folded about five years after the end of the war. And then the banks took over. And if you owed money to the buildings and loans and they folded and you had that house, then your bank loan it probably screwed everybody in Bailey Falls or whatever that was. Bedford Bailey Falls. Park. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bailey Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so... <laughs> Do you remember what the offer was that Mr. Potter gave George? Yeah, it was 20000 a year, which would have been like $300,000. Like, yeah. I looked it up. Plus, he could have gone to Europe. He yep. could have gone to New York. And, year. Yeah, yeah, so Potter was evil because he had a a wheelchair, I guess. I don't know. He made him look so <laughs> menacing in that big wheelchair with the, the big oak or whatever backing and mm-hmm. – that voice he spoke in, but that's true. If they were going to do a normal wheelchair, he'd appear too sympathetic. But they had to make it with that big oak backing with the yeah like obnoxious looking rocking chair type thing that just happened to have yeah. wheels on it. And his henchman right next to him that never said a word. You know, it's funny. The first time I watched that movie, I remembered him with the the Raven, not Uncle Billy. Oh yeah, that's Uncle Billy's because he's a weirdo with the animals. Remember, he has the squirrel. And... Yeah. All that now. Raven appeared in – I looked that up. That Raven appeared in another Frank Capra movie and then in every one after that. It's kind of a weird thing to have, a weird Easter egg. Yeah, but, okay. yeah very – made no difference, but <laughs> kind of like Christmas made no difference to the movie. <laughs> oh, we're still on that, huh? No. Um, so, yeah, we agree that Uncle Billy was crazy, wildly incompetent, got way too many chances. Um, George not taking that job – like I don't I don't see if that's necessarily problematic moving forward because if you want to take Saul Alinsky's approach to being a radical, he could have changed the system from within if he took that job. If he became yeah, the that's what I was thinking. Then he could have become bank president. Exactly. Then it solves itself. Then you actually have a sympathetic, good person as as the bank president. But maybe he's scared he loses his soul and that's why he never wants to take it but i don't know you got to have more confidence in yourself george like seriously yeah he he was very sentimental and i think that was his hang up which is weird because that was the lesson he didn't that's anyway yeah that was a little bit contradictory the lesson that he needed to be learned to be more sentimental but he was too sentimental when it came to his father's wishes and all that it was very um i mean it was well integrated around that but some of the moments were a little contradictory yeah 
Um, should we talk about how he got manipulated into staying into the job in the first place? Uh, oh, Mary's Wish? No. <laughs> it was actually... What was the first time? It was before I that. It was, it was when his dad dies. That's Mary's like, Wish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I don't know if she said I want his dad to die, but she t- she later says when they're at the house on their their wedding night, this was my wish, and it was like okay, and then his dad died two seconds later. Wait, wait a second, you wish for my dad to die? Yeah, no, this, I this my wish is, is over. Just, <laughs> my wish is to squash all your wishes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Welcome to the unhappy marriage we jumped into ten years later. <laughs> Okay, I guess there's an argument to be made that that uh, Mary killed George's dad, but um, uh, no, it was it was more specifically when he went there to like kind of close everything out at the building and loan before he was going to go off to college. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Guess oh, what? Right. The board chose to vote with you and against Potter." After he makes that big speech, right as he's going to leave, and he's like, "Cool, well, I got to go." And they're like, "No, no, no, but you have to be." around to run things and he's like i don't care i'm going to school like well you have to stay or else if not they're going to side with potter it's like that's total manipulation and it's like wait a second do you really believe in this or do you just want to pawn it off on me so i can be some sort of scapegoat for everybody i mean i i kind of had problems with how that went down watching it around watching it around this last time around well, it was confusing. I didn't know. I know Potter is one of the investors of the buildings and loans, so I really didn't understand his relationship with them. Um, it was very tenuous, and they hated each other, but he f- invested in the business, even though he said it was a dime. It didn't make much sense to me. But, he was yeah, and then um, uh, another... Take from the competition, I think, but... Well, another... Um, going off of your point of the manipulation is, I guess that... He must have negotiated a clause that his brother would take over then in four years because that's what he had planned on. Right. Because then we jump cut to four years later, his brother's coming back, and he's like, oh, surprise, I have a fiancé. I should have probably told you you're not going to be able to go to school before now, but whatever. Which, by the way, what are the three most uh, – the the three greatest sounds or whatever? Is that what it is? Three greatest sounds. <laughs> the... In the movie? Well, he asks Uncle Billy, uh, what are the three greatest sounds a man can hear? He's like, and Uncle Billy's like, I got it. Breakfast is served, lunch is served, dinner is ah. served. And he's like, no, 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 no. Plane engines, anchor chains, and train whistles or something like that. I can't remember. Right, right. But anyway, um, yeah, so then he gets manipulated in taking the job. He gets kind of manipulated into staying into the job. Cause he's like, well, I don't see any other way around this. It's kind of become a well-oiled machine that I have to stay here and run. Uh, yeah. And even when that time had come, he was going to hand it off to his brother, which makes us think, okay, maybe he can name a successor, a successor finally to the buildings and loans. I don't know if it necessarily had to be blood. We don't know. But then he got a really good job offer from Sam Wayne, right? And didn't take it. And I never... Why didn't he? Or invest in Sam Wainwright's company. Now, granted, never invest in a friend's company that tells you to invest in it. So I kind of understand that part. But yeah, that's fair. Like, why didn't he look into that? And I mean, I don't see how you can't leave the building alone when you get 
if he if he was going to give it to his brother, why can't they hire somebody else to run it at that point? So then he could just kind of go off and do it. Yeah, exactly. Thing. That's what I mean. Like, did it have to? Why was his brother so important? He wasn't shown to be any special competent Bailey that they liked. You know, attributed to George, it didn't make any sense. They didn't tell us. Yeah, he went away for school. Yep. We don't even know what he studied. That's right. Totally agree. Probably studied film. Yeah. Right. Last hang up that I have, if you have any more, by all means. But the one that I wanted to share was weirdly lots of kissing on the lips of his own mother. Was that a thing in the 1940s? Um, that part always kind of weirds me out a little bit. Uh, I don't know. I, I remember the first time I watched it being struck by that. But yeah, his mother's a widow and he probably just loves her. <laughs> I don't think it was anything sexual. No, I definitely know it wasn't sexual. I still like... Oh, weird. I feel like maybe it's a 1940s thing or just old school thing. But. Um, yeah, I don't. It's been a while since I think I've kissed my parents on the lips, but yeah. Um, some people are just more other... affectionate, right? Well, I mean, George Bailey. Let's talk about this. I don't know why he was very incompetent himself. I don't. I just rewatched the second half of the movie last night, and I'd only just caught this, and I was like, "Wow, he's an idiot." He's giving out his personal money on the day that the the crash happened, and there was a run at the bank, and instead of making them sign promissory notes, he's like, no, you pay back whenever, you're good for it. I'm like, you are so stupid. This is why everybody stands up in small claims courts, is because there's no... If you give money and say pay back whenever, you're giving money. You're not loaning money. He was a terrible businessman. He just... Always seem to have financial struggles. They kept, they kept talking about that. I don't really understand. I, I, he should have taken Potter's offer. I'm sorry. And honestly, yeah. there's an argument to be made. Oh, you want to respond to that? Well, no, I actually don't. I actually want to build off okay. of that. I actually think... Okay. I actually agree wholeheartedly with you there that he's he's somewhat incompetent when it comes to finances. <laughs> like, not necessarily a guy you want... At the helm of any financial institution. Now, I understand that like they wanted him to run it, but it was all sentimental based. It was all emotional, and like yeah. he always said the right things because he was a lover of the town and its people, and he loves people in general and thinks the best of humanity. But this all kind of trickles over to an interesting little trivia fact that I found that I don't know if we want to get to right now because. Did you have more of the hang-ups? Or should yeah, we there's back? a couple. There's a couple. Okay, let's, but, let's, I mean, let's, finish, let's finish out on this because I think there's more to it with what you're talking about and how yeah, there might be. George Bailey becomes idealized and why. And I think it was a screenwriting well, thing. It, yeah, probably. But oh, well, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. But in the same sense that you know he did have investors, taking the money, even if it's your personal money, giving it to the building and loans – and then handing it out without promissory notes is misappropriation of funds. That's just <laughs> – he's not unguilty of that at so the he end. he should go to prison is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think he should have gone to prison obviously. You're Potter. siding with Potter? <laughs> but absolutely not. But I think Potter was correct in that the Baileys weren't very intelligent people, <laughs> at least when it came to money handling. It takes a special breed, honestly. I, not, I couldn't do wrong. it. You're not wrong. You do have to – you kind of, you probably have to be a little cutthroat in some cases. Just kind of like, <laughs> okay, like gotta watch out, watch out for ourselves. Like, I'm sorry, you can't be sentimental. Finance. That's a, that's a major part of all this. Is that if you're gonna run anything financial related, you cannot be sentimental. Yeah, you, 
when you lend money to friends, even, you can't be sentimental about that. Yep. But I guess it's another... Uh, when they give the money at the end, I was always like, oh, these are the same people that he loaned the money to, even though they all threatened to go to the bank and, like, w- took his personal honeymoon money. I was like, these aren't nice people. These are... These are takers. And then finally at the end, we say, oh, all it took was a little spirit and they gave you all this money. It's like, no, they owed him that money. Yeah, that's the very least they could have done. That was all his money. Actually, okay, I'm glad you brought this up because that's another hang up that I did have that I forgot to write down that I mentioned. Sam Wainwright, a little superfluous wiring him $25,000 as a loan, (laughs) by the way, which is an over $300,000 loan. And let's be real. Sam Wainwright is one of those cutthroat money grubbers. That probably has at least a 15% interest rate attached to it. So that's not even really a good thing anyway. Like, Yeah, that's a – and plus, if I was one of the townspeople, I'd be like, oh, okay, thanks. I'll take that back now because you have three (laughs) times the amount you need. (laughs) Sam Wainwright's got your back it looks like. So I'm just going to – I could really use this money for Christmas. Interestingly enough, I thought that – I've always thought his motivation on that one was something to do with Mary. I always thought he was in love with her. I don't think he ever got over it. But he was literally like being massaged by some woman while he was on the phone talking to his girlfriend, Mary, who was flirting with George. Yeah, I still – I don't think he was the type who could stay faithful, but I still think he cared to torch for her. That's fair. Using old terminology. Yeah. Like, let's just – I don't think he would have done it only for George. That, she yeah, had there's an argument to be made there. There's an argument to be made there. Um, but I actually think you're hitting on something greater, which is we do kind of overlook the fact that, yeah, these people come in a display of love to rally for their guy, George, who they know loves them and the town. However, they show love to him by just repaying the money. Right. If that's the, Unless we didn't see it off screen, but... Again, there's so much left off screen. We just have to fill in the blanks here. Yeah, that's why we. Do that would have been enough, though. They would have taken more than two thousand because that's what he had lent was the two thousand dollars minus the two in assets on the day the the market crashed. So maybe they paid him back more. But oh, we don't I know. Assumed, I assume there was more in between because you had Martini in there as well. Oh right. And like it was just kind of running the building alone. And there's that whole scene where that. That guy talks – it's like one of Mr. Potter's employees talks to him and he's like, hey, like George Bailey's doing things that you like. You need to be weary of because this is mm-hmm. really working for the people. And they're not – like he's selling these houses at minimal cost when you and I both know that he could be making a lot more money off of this. So right. I guess there is that aspect of um, George Bailey doing these – doing this as favors but those technically aren't ious like it's not money that those people need to pay him back it's just that he's giving them i don't know a really really good interest rate and the loan still going to be paid off over time i don't really know i guess they don't obviously and here's the thing capper does the right thing by not actually going into the details there because if he did then he'd probably have to over explain it and then you turn a two-hour movie into a four-hour movie right right. he wants that but yeah, so I, I kind of I, I I conjoined not just the two thousand dollars he lent at the beginning, but also the uh, um, the fact that he was running building alone for like four years or no ten years I guess after that and just helping a lot of people that way. So some of it could yeah. have just been donations from the bottom of people's hearts too. That's possible. 
Well, we'd like to think so, yeah. That's the, okay. what I think the message is supposed to be, is you're such a good guy, look how people will rally for you. Yeah. All right, fair. Um, the other hang-up I have okay. is, um, I guess it's two, and it both has to deal with um, George's seeing his life without him, or seeing what life would have been like had he not been born. And we've talked about this first one, is when he saw Mary... It was like the the worst curse be- has befallen her. She remained single. It's like that's okay. We don't know if she was unhappy. You know, she was just working at the library on Christmas Eve, and God forbid she have glasses. Like, <laughs> like, how do we make Donna Reed look uglier? Well, definitely yeah. glasses. <laughs> how do we make her look unhappy? Glasses. <laughs> Let's like, put her hair up she... underneath the hat. <laughs> Let's make her make walk her like her head she's down. 40 years older than she really is. <laughs> I never understood that. I would have rather, like, it would have been way worse for him to see what li- her life, you know, I, maybe not single, but like, oh, yeah, she would have been something bad or something worse, something good happened to her. Like, she was actually married to Sam and happy. But <laughs> I will say, though, um, when you affirmed, see, what's that? Oh, I'd be affirmed if I saw, oh, my wife didn't, oh, cool, she is the love of my life. That's good to know. That's actually kind of comforting. Yeah, yeah, that's but... true. Um, we do see, when when we see Donna Reed closing up the library and then subsequently getting chased by George, um, and then the next time you see her, when she comes home and has and brings all those people with her, she she looks stunning. Like, when you see that difference, it is kind of crazy. Where you're oh. like... Like, she's just this lively, vibrant person. You're like, gosh, she's beautiful. Yeah, she's a um, very good actress, too. Yeah, yeah um, that's for sure. For those who haven't seen her uh, Oscar-winning performance in From Here to Eternity, very, very good with Frank Sinatra. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Uh, supporting actress. She played a prostitute, actually. Is that right? Which was a break for her, yeah. That was sort of what broke her clean-cut image for a while. Oh, yeah, she definitely, I could see why she'd have one. She kind of has that look. Yeah, very wholesome, very, you know, pretty. Yeah, for sure. Um, Oh, and then one more hang-up is, maybe it's just me, I think Pottersville looked a lot more fun to live in than Bedford Falls. (laughs) It was thriving, nightlife, and Bedford Falls was, like, always struggling. People couldn't afford their rent. (laughs) It was like, oh, man, there's an argument to be made. (laughs) This is coming from a guy that chose to live in Hollywood. So there is that. Yeah, there's that. And so did everybody <laughs> who made the movie. But Oh, and then that old man who beat the crap out of him as a kid. I did not care what happened to him one way or another. Mr. Gower. Yeah. Yeah. What a horrible... I don't. I know his son died, but geez, he beat the crap out of him until he bled. Well, this is dipping into fun facts, but apparently that guy was a method actor and actually got drunk in that scene. <laughs> oh, really? Which oh, I didn't think they had method acting in the... I guess it would have been... claim was in one of, but... one of the items I saw. And it, you're right. I mean, I feel like method acting has taken on, like, varying varying meanings. Yeah, um, there's a lot of different methods. But, yeah, that... I guess, well, Brando came onto the scene. A, a, he was about to be on the scene in a couple of years. He was about to do streetcar. So that makes sense that this guy was doing it maybe a little bit, just didn't get the exposure for it. Can we... Can I actually... Can we talk about method acting for a second? Yeah, sure. I have I have an inherent problem with method acting. I don't think it's necessarily good acting. Like I, I actually think what makes somebody a good actor is somebody that's able to turn it on and turn it off. And that 
look no further than J.K. Simmons these days because he kind of, especially when he was filming Whiplash, apparently when he had to go into that character, that was something that he just, boom, cameras on, he became a monster. Cameras off, he had to like really, like really try hard to get back to who he really is, which by the way, from what I've heard, he's a salt-of-the-earth type guy. Everybody loves him. Everybody's worked with him. It's only had great things to say. Very loving person, personable, all that. And to the point where he, like, even, like, cried sometimes because he's like, I can't believe, like, the person I am while the cameras are on. That, to me, is a more impressive display of acting than someone that just goes crazy for however long filming time there is, from any, any time from two weeks to six months, who knows, where, like, you get Jared Leto sending dead animals to the other castmates for Suicide Squad, and you're kind of like, that's just weird. Like, I don't, I don't, I can't really look at that and say, what an impressive person who, who will get so into character that he'll just become a complete psychopath even when the camera's off. And it's like, no, he's really just adopting a new personality for the time being. To me, it's more impressive if they can just do it in a moment's notice. I don't know. Um, well, it's, I, I guess whatever works, you know, to get the performance on screen is all that really matters. But to your point, Lawrence Olivier, um, the great, made a movie with Dustin Hoffman, Mr. I Method Actor. I know this himself. story. Yeah. Yeah, tell it. And Marathon Man. And Dustin Hoffman's character had to be up for strenuous amounts of time in the movie. So he did that in real life. And Lawrence Olivier was just like, my dear boy, why don't you just try acting? Yeah. I love but, that story, and that goes that goes exactly to my point, and that maybe that's where I got it because I heard that story a few years ago, and that could have been the genesis of kind of my overall thoughts towards method acting in general. Um, that's interesting though because you said that for its time, it's a wonderful life is well acted, which speaks to non method acting usually. Yeah. So the argument that acting's gotten better, I mean, because most act- actors now employ a kind of method, unless right. you're classically Shakespearean trained and use that solely, but. I did. I did retract that when I said for its time. I was like, maybe that's not even fair. Maybe it is good acting. Yeah, I think the acting, it, it acting was just different because the technological limitations of things. it is, and it's hard to gauge because I, I, I agree. Like you can't really necessarily compare pound for pound acting then versus acting now because of so many other variables at play while you're shooting. So and yeah, writing, I mean, you watch cultural like cars. Yeah, and you watch Streetcar Named Desire with um, you know three method actors and then Vivian Lee, the Shakespearean actor. You can't really tell the difference. Hmm. So there you go. All right, should we get into fun facts then? Yeah. What do you got for us? I don't us? know if I have any. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I mean, we talked about the Raven. I guess that's a fact. It's not necessarily a fun fact. What do you got? So Uncle Billy's drunk scene. Mm-hmm. when he like apparently falls into some trash cans off camera was actually a stage hand that got a bunch of things to crash just like a bunch mm-hmm. of like materials and whatnot and uncle billy's line i think was ad-libbed right in like at the moment like it was just this moment of um improv and subsequently potentially making jimmy stewart's reaction his smile fairly authentic when he sees that it wasn't supposed to be Uncle Billy causing that ruckus, it was just some stagehand doing something, and then boom, Uncle Billy saying that, and then Jimmy Stewart reacting to that positively, I think is kind of a funny little side hmm. note for that. Um, the original Alfalfa from Little Rascals makes an appearance. Oh, wow. Did you know that? As? 
He's the he's Mary's date at the dance. Oh, that is a total alfalfa guy. The one right? who opens this this floor. Yeah, yeah. And plummets them all in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's a total alfalfa move too. It's a little rascal move, that's for sure. But um yeah. Also <laughs> take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I would have known this if it weren't for my sister Eden. Um who shout out to Eden. She listens to the pod. Um that's you've seen uh white christmas right uh yes yeah you know the sisters Long the, time uh, what's their name the what sisters the andrews and andrews sisters wait no that doesn't sound right you're talking about the in the movie or the actresses the in the movie the name of the sister. oh I, no i I've, I've only seen the movie one time and it was like when i was 18 years old okay well they have a name and you know like there's the famous Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye scene where they pretend to be the sisters, all that stuff, right? Uh-huh. Which, by the way, that laughing I heard was, like, very authentic as well. So, oh, that was kind of cool because they were legitimately making each other crack up, like, all that stuff. But anyway, um, there's a scene when they meet the sisters right before – or, no, I think during the, – the reason why they meet them is because they served in the war with their brother. And they right. have a picture of the brother – and they make a joke about how, oh, wow, like he looks nothing like his sisters because he's kind of an ugly looking dude. It's that same guy. It's that alfalfa guy. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of funny. Isn't that funny? I think a lot of people um, assume, maybe it's a it's a killjoy fact, but Bert and Ernie are not the origin of Bert and Ernie in Sesame Street. I knew that. Yeah. I looked that yeah. up too. Yeah. It is. Yeah, a a lot of people think that because I it makes saw, sense. Yeah. They want him to be, but. Who drives a taxi in a town that looks like pretty walkable with a centralized location? Anyway, <laughs> yeah. oh, good, yeah, great point. That's why he. Li- <laughs> that's why he lived in a shack with his wife. Yeah, uh, and I love how she left him because Jimmy Stewart wasn't alive. At a, what? <laughs> yeah, I guess, he was a marriage counselor too. Didn't you know that? Um, he, he's the force that kept that marriage together exactly, all along. Exactly. Um, he was yeah, the only Ernie, character, though. The trivia I read was like, unbeknownst to most people, they think Bert and Ernie is tied to Muppets, and Muppets insiders have actually said that that's not the case. And I'm like, Muppets have insiders? <laughs> like, what yeah, are you talking about? Everything has insiders has developed their cults, I think. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. Uh, the FBI flagged this movie as communist propaganda, and here's the thing I kind of buy it. <laughs> I kind of, yeah, I you, kind of you see you it. Yeah, you brought that up before I did. And I'm more liberal than you are, and I never really <laughs> saw it that way. <laughs> like, it's – here's another part. So Dalton Trumbo, well-known mm-hmm. blacklisted screenwriter in Hollywood for his communist leanings apparently. Now, I don't know whether or not he was actually a communist, I guess. I don't know that far. What do you know? Do you know anything? Was he actually a communist? Um, I, You know, that's something I don't know anything about. I should know more about Trumbo than I do. I didn't see the movie. I've never looked up anything about him. So Trumbo, whether or not you believe he was an actual communist or not, I don't know, had a lot of say in this script development. He was one of the original writers. I knew knew that, yeah. I knew it passed through his hands at least once. So this is the actual quote from the FBI. With regard to the picture, It's a Wonderful Life, and it says redacted, stated in substance, so a person stated in substance that the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. 
And then hmm. there's another quote that I found that in Trumbo's draft, so this is what I think is interesting too, that in Trumbo's draft, George Bailey was a politician who grew more cynical as the story progressed, then tried to commit suicide after losing an election. Clarence then showed him Bedford Falls, not as it would be as if he had never been born, but if he had gone into business instead of politics, which hmm. does sound okay, like a little bit that. like man of the people, working for the people, like that type of thing, which I thought was interesting. And it really does paint bankers and mainstream capitalism as we know it today as the villain in this, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, especially after World War II. When well, and that George Ooh. Bailey is very sympathetic. He's a sympathetic figure, but also kind of has more of that socialist-type perspective on economics in general. The, um... Yeah, it's, uh... I mean, that's why, you know, without him there, there was a thriving community. <laughs> <laughs> that's why That's why you wanted to live in Pottersville. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, much more financially stable. <laughs> but... Maybe that was the argument for capitalism. I don't know. And we just missed it. Yeah, good point. I don't know. Anyway, thought that was worth mentioning. And I think that's yeah. the only reason why Uncle Billy keeps his job. Communism. <laughs> like, that's... Because well, he's, not, he's not thriving in a capitalist arena, that's for sure. Uncle Billy is just such a prop, too, because they couldn't have Jimmy Stewart incompetently lose. And he doesn't even remember where he lost the money. He lost it two seconds earlier in the newspaper, and he saw... How could he, he – he could retrace every step but that one. Let's talk about that for a second. Ugh. Potter's not necessarily an evil man until that yeah, scene. Yeah. That was pretty evil. Like that, that, that is the scene where you're like, oh my gosh, he is actually a bad person. And then he yeah. called George to rub it in. And he's like, rumor has it, you just loaned money to Violet, da-da-da, and – you lost money that you owe to the bank and blah, 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 and da, da, da. And he's like, you once called me a warped, frustrated old man. Yeah, here you are that was in me. person. Yeah. And you're like, that you're dude more had the alive. money the whole time. And you're like, wow. Okay, he went from potentially just a devout, like, capitalist man, a, like, loves America, loves making money, which can be less than stellar in a lot of ways when, when you're not a nice person, not a good person, right? Yeah. He went from that, which is like still somewhat forgivable or at least manageable to deal with. Like you don't have to necessarily think those people are evil to straight up evil. Like he became Satan yeah. in that scene where you're like, wow, he's horrible. actually a terrible person. I mean, I think I remember the the backing of his wheelchair to have like skulls in there. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. I think they changed in that moment. Um, it should have. Okay, last so thing the thunder that I've clapped. got. What's that? The, the thunder clapped and... Yeah, exactly. Um, last thing I've got for fun facts. And this is actually going to go transition nicely into our next uh, topic, which we've only got about two more here. Um, Cary Grant was almost cast as George Bailey. Yeah. This must have been... Was this before or after The Preacher's Wife? I think it was right around then, actually. Okay. You mean The Bishop's Wife? Yeah, Bishop's Wife, sorry. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Whitney remake. Yeah, Whitney Houston one, yeah. With Denzel. That's old Denzel. Yeah. Going back to that previous point, though, if you can maybe edit this, but I wonder how it would have paired if you watched Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with the original It's a Wonderful Life in succession of one another. Some aspiring, good-hearted politician versus this disgruntled, hate, vitriolic politician who wants to get off himself. 
Oh yeah, that's that's interesting. Actually, maybe that's probably I, why they didn't want to do that. But I won't want to. I won't want to edit this. But I like this, so this is this is still good anyway. I mean, this is free flowing, okay. man. We're good. But um, no, that's actually a really good point. That's yeah. If Trumbo would have gotten his version in there, would that have looked? Well, how would that have looked? Um. Anyway, so how does this movie look with Cary Grant as the lead, or someone else that also got cast? I guess. I, this one didn't sound as close. Like, the Cary Grant one was, like, potentially actually going to happen. But Henry Fonda was also tossed around, too, as a lead. Now, my opinion is that Cary Grant, the movie's basically the same. I think he does yeah. just as good of a job. I don't think he does a better job than Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. But at most, he can kind of match what Jimmy Stewart's able to pull off in that movie. Um, Henry Fonda, not as good. That's my opinion. Oh, I love Henry Fonda. I do too, but I don't think this is his role. Like, because Henry, uh, Henry Fonda doesn't really play like the. He doesn't have that side of him where he can be like this really forceful, like hard on people, like convincingly tough person. Um. Well, he's in one of my favorite movies called Spencer's Mountain, where he's a lumberjack. Essentially, I thought he pulled that off very well. But Henry Fonda, I just think, doesn't have the all-American boy next door quality that Jimmy Stewart did. Henry Fonda, I think, was very... I mean, they were both tall, but Henry Fonda has more of a towering presence, I think, that would have been inappropriate for this role. How tall is Henry Fonda? Uh, let me look it up. So I actually didn't know Henry Fonda was even that tall. He's not as physically imposing, though, in some ways. Six six foot two. I mean, Jimmy Stewart had to have been right around six two, right? Jimmy Stewart might have been like six foot three, but Jimmy Stewart looked taller because he was a beanpole. And Henry Fonda wasn't as as much of a beanpole because he looked like even skinnier in some ways to me. <laughs> Henry Fonda, I, I, you know, you read something about him being in the services, but I remember reading somewhere that he was denied something because he weighed too le- too few pounds. You mean Jimmy Stewart? Yeah. Yeah. No, he he served in the war. Yeah, but wasn't he 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 couldn't do combat or something because he didn't weigh enough? That I don't know. I'll be honest. He was know. too um, skinny. Essentially, what they told him. Interesting. But, um, he was six foot three. We're gonna give a shout out to Mister Kruger's Christmas while we do this. Or? Yeah, I actually was wondering. I was like, how can I fit that in? Because that to me is kind of worth mentioning. The like, did is is Mister Kruger the version of Jimmy Stewart that never actually recovers and he just like Aww. stays dead and becomes this disillusioned old man and. <laughs> goes crazy and pretends like he's leading the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and tries to only have, tries to have a bunch of guests over to his house, but never really is successful in that and just continually devolves into this person over time. Like what, like what are we seeing here? Well, you'd have to be crazy if that was your fantasy to lead the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, but (laughs) (laughs) I don't think a lot of people daydream about that one. Um, Maybe unless you're in it, but if you, if you were shown what your life looks like and how miserable it turned out, without you but you weren't able to go back to your normal life i think that's fair interesting yeah i guess there is another fun fact jimmy stewart um donated his personal library of film or something to byu i think i remember hearing that actually i forgot about that yeah i've never seen it but i don't even know what it is but i don't know it's might be on display somewhere still but when he passed away it was willed to byu huh Cool. Or maybe because of his relationships formed in that movie. I don't really know. Yeah, hard to say. It's very, who knows for sure. Um, 
That is interesting. Anyway, that would be a good to... segue for that. What's that? If you want to put that fun fact, and then we could Mr. Kruger's Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's so true. Bring it up. Um, I, I think the movie isn't as good with Henry Fonda personally. That's not a knock on Henry Fonda. No, I don't think so either. It would have been wrong for the role. Yeah. Um, but Cary Grant, about the same. What do you think? Yeah. Um, well, I, I find Jimmy Stewart to be a better actor than Cary Grant. Personally, I thought Cary Grant had a very, and forgive me, I do like Cary Grant, but he did have a very affected way of speaking to me. Sometimes he used the transatlantic, which I wasn't a big fan of. Yeah, he did kind of sound, why did he sound, I thought he was like British for the longest yeah, time. Yeah, it, it was that accent to sound neither at the yeah. time, transatlantic. Huh. Yeah, that makes sense. they train actors in. He had an interesting story, by the way. You know, his like, na- original name was like Archie Leach, and he like mm-hmm. ran away from home to join the circus for the longest time. It was very like, which is why part of it was he was like so big into physical acting and humor and stuff like that, because that's kind of how he learned to perform. Interestingly enough, but anyway, this is this is not a podcast about Cary Grant. Um, <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you this: How this is the this is the second to last topic that we're getting into? How would we cast this today? That oh, to me. This is this is these are some of the most fun conversations though I think we can get into. How would we cast the movie today if it were today? And my my initial go to and this is probably because I'm just a sucker for this dude. Um Hugh Jackman. Army Hammer. I think he's yeah, Army Hammer. <laughs> yeah, this is how he this is how he rebounds. <laughs> this is his PR move. He's gonna do this role for free. <laughs> um, um. But I have to disagree with you there. A huge, no. Hugh Jackman is too old for this role, I think. Yeah, he's, he's too old. And but 10, I also don't 10 think to 15 years ago, I think he pulls it off. Um, He never gave me that all-American look. Maybe because I've so strongly identified him as Australian. Yeah, maybe he gives I, you that all-Australian look, though. Yeah, he's very macho to me because he's Wolverine, so I don't know about that. I also okay. find when he does drama or light movies, he's not very effective but plus he's so hung up on the way he looks on screen it's kind of disgusting sometimes but yeah there's probably something to that you can see it in the way he won't smile completely so he doesn't show his eye wrinkles he's you can tell he's a vain dude but um you feel that way about professor (laughs) i don't know that's such a tough one i i mean like you said it's sometimes apples and oranges compared to the what was required then versus how something would be now yeah um i'm not in love with ryan reynolds but i think he could do something similar to this i don't see that man i i have a hard time with ryan reynolds not being able to like it's not my top choice he breaks the fourth wall in everything he does so i would just like half expect that where it's like wait a second what are we watching now you know and like yeah, I, I don't know. Ryan, I like Ryan Reynolds. John Krasinski, entertaining. What's that? John Krasinski, maybe. I actually think you're right. I think that's the one. I think He's John got Krasinski. A vibe. I think John Krasinski is the one. I think that's right. I wasn't even thinking about him, but I think that wins because he's got that all-American look. He's he's not very physically imposing if he doesn't want to be. Now he's put on a right. lot of muscle since his office days, but uh, uh, he very much has that depth to be kind of this like semi like has big dreams but never really fulfills them and so he kind of always feels inept at least on a personal level 
and then the ability to like lash out when he needs to, right? Yells at his daughter, yells at his daughter for um, playing the same song over and over again, just losing it in that moment because everything just hits the fan and goes wrong in his life. That's got Krasinski written all over it. I think you found it, man. I think that's the I one. Could, yeah, I could get behind it. I mean, it wouldn't be as. I mean, there's no no replacing Jimmy Stewart, of course. I agree. But if we had to, I guess he's got the kind of Jimmy Stewart look to him too. Yeah. No, I think you nailed it on that one, man. Is there anybody else we even want to try and entertain here? Like, who who do we make the lead? I mean, I'm looking through some. It's like Chris Hemsworth. No. <laughs> Talk about physically imposing. Yeah. Although he'd be funny in it. But Bradley Cooper, no. He's too intense. You could almost eyes. do You could almost do Liam Hemsworth, though. Yeah. I Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no? Does anybody get excited about Liam Hemsworth being in a movie? Uh, no, probably not. Um... Not since he Channing came Tatum. Um, um, I don't really see Channing Tatum. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, not Timothy Chalamet. Not Timothy Chalamet. I don't know why he's casting anything these days, quite frankly. But Casting everything. Yeah. I know Anya Taylor-Joy for Mary, either. No. Not one with you there, too. They're about the same age, though, I think. Her and uh, Donna Reed. When this, I don't... I think... How old is Anya Taylor-Joy? About 25? Maybe younger than that. I wonder if you could make, yeah, you put glasses on Anya Taylor Joy, and you get serves the same purpose. <laughs> yeah, same age, same oh, exact gosh. age. You just closed up the library. She looks awful. <laughs> <laughs> a lonely librarian. <laughs> um, I've seen that before. I can't think of a female lead. I'll be honest. I, like honestly, Pam Beasley now comes to mind, and I'm like, that actually might work. <laughs> um, Jenna oh, Fisher. Well, I mean, even. I mean, even John Krasinski, I don't know how old he is. But his wife would be okay. Emily Blunt would actually be a good yeah. one. Yeah, I was just well, thinking about okay. that, too. Yeah, that'd be um, a little too on the nose, maybe. But I used to see some comparisons to Keira Knightley and Donna Reed, like head-on, shape of the face and the brown eyes, but I don't know if Keira Knightley would strike the right chord here. What about Natalie Portman? They kind of look alike, and she seems like she's uh, got a better range that way. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Natalie Portman does very weird choices, though. She's a little older now, I think, for that role, maybe. Well, think, but you could she could pull I mean, it off. Though. She still cast. looks pretty young. I mean, the thing about this movie is, would we cast these people playing eighteen, like in this movie? Like, because Jimmy Stewart's like, oh, we're dropping in when he's forty now. Yeah. Oh wait, no, he's supposed to be in high school. Okay. No, you'd have to make it college. You'd have to make <laughs> talk it like about the complaints against nine hundred two and L. You have to make it some sort of college event at that point, where like. He comes in as a post-grad, runs into Mary, who's an undergrad, and that could work for John Krasinski. Yeah. Sally Field is the mom. <laughs> and then, who'd be the angel? That'd be an interesting choice. Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dreyfus might not be bad. Uh, Mr. Potter, though. Who, who, who's oh. I think you just oh, go man. with Donald Trump at that point. Yeah. Just do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just Trump. Trumpsville. <laughs> Trumpsville. There's been, I'm sure there's been comparisons made. Oh, I know there has. I'm sure there is. Uh, Pottersville is Trump's America, essentially. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. Old curmudgeon. Let me think on that one. I don't really know. And what about that one guy who, um, uh, Willem Dafoe? He's kind of nasty sometimes in his delivery. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's too much of a caricature, though. He'd take me right out of the movie. Oh, you think? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't know. Potter's a tough one. You're going back a lot of years. Probably maybe somebody who's not really like a relevant name anymore. Maybe their career would get resurrected. Yeah, I was thinking that too, actually. Yeah. Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, All right. he does is growl and everything anyway. Anymore. Yeah. Huh. Well, lost on me for now. Everybody's dying yeah. these days. I'm not even sure who's alive at this point. But Yeah, you pick somebody, they're going to die. Exactly. All right, how do we close this out with the MVP award? I mean, obviously, Jimmy Stewart wins the MVP. That one's obvious, but you got to go, like, MVP 2, MVP 3. Like, who is it? Oh, like... Clarence gets the MVP. Really? Yeah, he got his wings. That was, that was the MVP. It was, <laughs> it's self-evident. He does have my favorite quote from the movie, right? Most memorable is obviously every time an angel or a bell rings, an angel gets wings. Um, that's not my favorite quote, though. I think that quote's, like, it's a child quote, like, right? Like, yeah. it's doesn't resonate um but his what he writes in the book is um remember no man is a failure who has friends oh in the tom sawyer book yeah which did you why is that tom sawyer i've never knew but i don't think there's any representation there i don't think there's any deeper meaning to that personally maybe there is um but they're the uh the uh, that quote is a beautiful quote, and it is something that I remind myself, kind of like, you know, a few times a year. Not that it's like because I'm sitting on the brink of depression. It's like, oh, how am I not a failure? Oh, I have friends. No, I just think it's a beautiful idea that it's like, fr- friends really are that important to us, and friends really can go a long way, and those deeper connections that we have around us. And obviously, it's not that the baseline is just not being a failure. It is that we are, we are successful through our friendships and good friendships can help drive us to be better people and vice versa. That's true. That is true. No debate about that. It's a truism. So maybe you're right. You are the company you keep. That's right. Maybe the underdog is Clarence and he's MVP because of that. Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to think who else would be. Yeah, nobody else. They're all kind of just screwed him along the way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Almost literally everybody in that town. Right. Um, one, other, one other one that I'd like to point out is the little brother. For Why is it that – is it just because he's just a handsome guy that he's just like such an appealing character? Uh, he's got the good smile and – He uh, adores his older well. brother. That's, yeah. that's a really redeeming part too, of that character. It is good acting. It's like he really, really respects and admires his older brother – even though, and this is an interesting part of the story as a whole, is that even though Harry was clearly the objectively more successful of the two, mm-hmm. he never let, like, that never played out in their relationship. Right. Like, he, he even said at the end, he has that line at the very end. He says, to my, to my older brother, the richest man in Bedford Falls or whatever, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and what I like about that line is that he's not talking literally because clearly he's never going to... You wouldn't say that to the richest person. And you wouldn't say that. That's a really good point. (laughs) It's a pity quote. (laughs) But what is he saying? He's saying, look around at everything you have. Here you are on Christmas Eve. Everybody came to save you. Everybody came to have your back, to make sure you were okay. You're here with your family, your beautiful family with wife, your wife and four or five kids. I can't remember how many they had. I think four. Um, Four. 
And he's just looking at me and says, now that's that's wealth. That's riches. That is what life is all about. And that's, right. you know, obviously the, the basis of the movie. It's a wonderful life. And what is life all about? So I think that's probably a good way to end. But what do you think? Yeah. No, I agree with that. It's a good inspirational movie in that regard, despite it not being a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah. Hard hard for me to not cry when I see it still. Like, there's just a handful of times I think I haven't cried watching it. And I mean, I don't mean, like, full-on crying, but I mean, like, you know, eyes watering up, getting a little mm-hmm. teary-eyed, because it is such a beautiful message. It's so nostalgic, so well done. That's why I wanted to cover it, and I appreciate you coming on to help me do that, man. It's been It's always fun talking yeah. to you about these things anyway. So when I thought of this, I was like, that's a no-brainer. Bring Andy on. And then I still want to bring you back at some point for a Seinfeld episode. Oh, yeah, we a, a better scripted one. Yeah, we exactly. tried that. We tried that. That's long yeah, no somewhere, way. man. That's in the cloud. Yeah, I don't know where that one is. But <laughs> we'll have to bring you back, and we could bring in a, a couple other people, but just have something more of a blueprint in mind when we do it because there's so many different yeah, ways for sure. to go. All right, Andrew, thank you so much, man. Best of luck with name? everything. What's that? What's my last name? Wink year. Yeah, Wink year. Um, thanks for coming on, man. And but thanks good luck with me. screenwriting and everything. It's going to be exciting to see where you go. Um, obviously you'll keep me in the loop, but yeah. you know, if you'd be so willing first. to come on, talk about these things again, talk about where you're at right now with the screenwriting, and we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. Love to. All right, thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for checking in, everyone. If you liked what you heard today, I ask super quickly if you could just follow or subscribe to the podcast, give it a rating, give it a review, tell your friends about it. All of that stuff helps me quite a bit. Watching the growth has been super humbling and motivating to keep going, and I could not possibly appreciate all of you more. Sitting on my table, I'm watching As everything's changing my mind Goes to a different time Old love, I remember falling so madly There must have been magic in the valley And a rhythm in the night Cause I could almost see it Did you fade right out of you? If it takes time